Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, along with Luke Doris. This is podcast number 10 of Hurricane Season 2021 and podcast number 66 in our series. We're recording this podcast on August 24th, 2021. Every time I say that date, I remember, of course, that that was the date that Hurricane Andrew made landfall in South Dade. 29 years ago this morning, Andrew came ashore and it changed everybody's life that had anything to do with South Dade. And of course, it significantly changed mine. This morning, I wrote that I think the number one lesson from Andrew, Luke, is that these incredible hurricanes can come ashore as just monster Category 5 buzzsaws and only just become a hurricane 48 hours before. You know, going forward in terms of taking lessons out of Andrew, I mean, you have all these lessons about building codes and mitigation and everything else. But it feels like to me that that's the biggest lesson that uh, every hurricane plan that a business has, that a government has, that anybody has, has to take into account uh, storms like Andrew that develop just at the last minute and in some sort of significant way. And you have to ask yourself, you know, if they, well, if you were looking at a tropical storm, would you evacuate? Even if they said, if they knew it were going to be category five, just based on a forecast, would you do it if you were looking at a, a tropical storm or a category one hurricane? Uh, to me, that feels like the biggest ongoing issue. Yeah, it'd be a hard thing to get people to move with, uh, with conviction if they're looking at a tropical storm. And every Cat 5 that has made landfall on the U.S. has been that type of storm, a small, rapidly developing, mega-intense storm at the last minute. Yeah, although the difference was, uh, is, they are somewhat different. Like the 1935 storm, if that were to happen again, I mean, it's hard to go back and put yourself in the place of that and look at the weather pattern and everything. But my sense of that is that it started as a tropical storm. It intensified, intensified quickly, but, you know, it was following a generally followed path of turning to the right, curving to the north, and I'm betting that modern technology would forecast that pretty well. Like Camille, uh, you know, they had Camille going to the Florida Panhandle and ended up going to Mississippi, but generally it was following the normal path a hurricane takes. In Hurricane Andrew's case, it was already north of the latitude of Miami or the longitude of, no, the latitude of Miami. It was already north of Miami. And, you know, the traditional idea was once they're north of Miami, Miami doesn't have to worry. But, this, first of all, four days before, did not even have a circulation. Three days before, it was a tropical storm. And it, then it was north of Miami, and it became a hurricane. And then it turned left, and or kind of a light left, and you know came over Homestead. So it was weird on a number of levels, and I'm not, I don't think that even modern technology would pick all that up. Our number one problem with forecasting still today is rapid intensification right and the track and intensity of a storm are tied together so if you can't catch that then you're not going to catch the track very well so that's yeah, still a problem yeah exactly well today we're going to pick up uh, where we left off last week on the podcast and i'm going to turn the podcast once again over to luke all right everybody so today is part two of my talk with brian about the twists and turns in his life and there's a bunch of them and they are interesting so if you missed the first part 
I suggest you go back and listen to podcast number 65. That's where we talk about the time up to and including Hurricane Andrew. And today, we continue that conversation. All right, we'll get to that in, in just a few minutes. But first, we're going to talk about the tropics uh, right now. After I remind you that if you're listening to this some point in the future, like after August 24th, 2021, for the latest in South Florida, you tune into Channel 10 uh, for Local 10 News, of course, and it's on pretty much all day anymore. And all of the newscasts are streamed on Local10.com. There's also the Max Tracker uh, Hurricane app where you get the latest tropical information or the Local 10 Weather Authority app. And you can go to Local10.com slash hurricane and sign up for the newsletter I write just about every day. Every day there's something going on in the tropics, and these days it's pretty much every day. So you scroll down to the middle of the page under the picture of all of us, and you'll see a place to put in your email address, and then we'll send that to you every morning. Okay, um, so let's talk about Henri for uh, a second. Uh, you know, those storms that are right on the fringe are so hard to communicate, and I, my sense is that the, the forecasts were not great for Henri, but felt worse than they were because it had that, that really difficult problem uh, in the north where you have Long Island, and was it going to hit Long Island? And if it hits Long Island head-on, there you've got beaches full of massive numbers of people, but if it just misses Long Island like it did, then it goes up to Rhode Island, which doesn't have the density of people and, uh, you know, this complicated coastline. I mean, there's a lot in, in Rhode Island and a lot in Massachusetts and Connecticut. But but anyway, and then, then it really didn't turn to the right and affect eastern Massachusetts. It kind of went to the left. And then we had that event, um, which I wanted to ask you about meteorologically, if you thought that what happened in New Jersey and New York City with all that rain, that incredible rain, was what is called a pre-event or a precursor event of the hurricane. I think so. Uh, I mean, they it seems to follow the criteria for a predecessor rain event, which I'm not super familiar with, mm -hmm. so maybe you can help kind of fill in some of the gaps. But basically you need somewhere around four inches of rain in a 24-hour period to qualify, and it is within a day and a half preceding the uh, rain shield of the actual tropical cyclone. So it, that was the case, and they got, I think, over eight inches in a number of spots in areas of right. New York and New Jersey. So and they got almost two inches in one hour in New York City, which is the highest, uh, 1.94 inches is the highest rain amount ever recorded there in one hour. That was the worst weather was in New Jersey and right. New York. It, it was, was worse there than it was where they had landfall. Speaking of landfall, weird landfall. Mm -hmm. Their westerly Rhode Island mm -hmm. took the landfall from Henri. 44 right. days before, it took the landfall from Elsa, both tropical storms. Right. And a name storm hadn't hit Rhode Island since 1991 in Bob. And then they get two in yeah. 44 days in the same town at the same time of 12:15 p.m. It's yeah. Absurd. This is it absurd. Really, it's crazy, crazy. Yeah, in 2004 we had Jean and and Francis uh, go over Stewart, essentially go right over Stewart, uh, the center of them, Stewart, Florida. It happened. It's crazy crazy this thing's happened, but the timing of that one was amazing. So, the the interesting thing about this event where you had that heavy rain in New Jersey and New York is that usually those pre-events involve a front or they involve some sort of boundary that that the 
you know, is involved there in the, in the tropical moisture streams up and, and there's also a jet involved, right? Mm -hmm. In this case, we had that the same uh, upper level system, upper level low pressure system that had cut off uh, and that was what deflected uh, Henri closest to the coast, made it turn left. Uh, and, and those two, I think, interacting, the tropical moisture coming in and getting involved with that strong upper level low, I think. I don't think there—I couldn't see any kind of surface features, any kind of fronts or anything like that, right? I, so I think it was an interaction of those two low-pressure systems, essentially, and a lot of uh, difluence, a lot of the air spreading out uh, aloft— and therefore, uh, a lot of rising air, I think. But I don't know. I'm not 100% sure. It seemed like a really fairly small area. I mean, like yeah. a mesoscale type feature. Right. We're talking northern New Jersey for the most part and southern New York, where that really focused. Uh, where if it were a big synoptic, a bigger scale feature, you'd think it'd be spread over a much larger area. So there was probably something there on a small scale. Maybe. Some, but the, but the, low, the upper level low was not very big. You know, it really yeah. was a pretty small kind of cut off out of the, from the bottom of a trough feature. So anyway, I, did, I thought it was interesting. I'm going to be really interested to see when people analyze that, you know, and and uh, see what they come up with. So yeah. that'll be fascinating. So uh, we have a system now that that hasn't formed yet. It's a you can kind of make it out the moisture surge going along the northern coast of South America that ends up in the Southern Caribbean. And there's already kind of a broad low pressure area there. You can see it in the wind field. And they sort of merge as often happens in the Southern Caribbean. And you end up with uh, some sort of tropical system looks like coming out of there and heading toward the Yucatan once again. Talk about getting run over by, nice. by uh, storms. Uh, and then uh, big questions for early next week in uh, the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, will something pop up there by or consolidate? Probably a better term because there's going to be some spin there. Is it going to be consolidated and tight and turn into a tropical storm or, or tropical depression? That's the question. But that's it's well away from South Florida. There's no threat for South Florida mm -hmm. with that. But Texas and the Gulf Coast of Mexico uh, needs to watch that one. Yeah, I mean the you know the, the predecessor event hasn't even happened. I mean the the tropical beginning of a tropical depression part of that whole sequence hasn't happened so any forecasts are definitely uh, subject to significant uh, change at this point okay so once again i turn the podcast over to luke okay so let's pick up my conversation with brian talking about the time after hurricane andrew and i asked him how his intense experience during andrew changed his life well, uh, I became all about hurricanes and, and, you know, TV stations were anxious for me to be all about hurricanes. Um, and, and so I, you know, they were happy to send me to conferences and, you know, do hurricane specials at conferences. And we traveled all over the place to Cuba and um, Aruba and all kind of different uh, stories uh, to, that I did that were related somehow to to weather and, and so forth. And, you know, and they were happy to have me do that. And I did all this network work. So when I was working for NBC, I did the Today Show. I filled in for Willard Scott on the Today Show and got to work with, you know, Bryant Gumbel and Katie Couric and all these wonderful people that, you know, came to be friends and so forth. So, uh, yeah, you know, I was just very 
very busy. And I also got to anchor. I, I wanted to anchor. So when I went to CBS, that was one of the things that I wanted to do is anchor the news. So uh, they let me do that. So I did the weather at 5, anchored the 5.30, and did the weather at 6. Uh, and, and I did that for three years, and I, I really enjoyed that. And then the, the management changed and said, I don't want you anchoring anymore. I want you to be the weather guy. You know, we do research. Everybody just nobody talks about your anchoring. Everybody talks about the weather. Um, but I, I kind of enjoyed anchoring. And my, you know, a story I don't think I've I've told. I know some of my friends know about it. But but one of the anchoring things when I was an anchor that happened, and it happened not too long after I started anchoring, was I was at the beach, physically on the beach. Uh, and back then we had pagers, you know, because you didn't carry a, a mobile phone around. This is 1996. And my pager goes off and it says 911. And, you know, that meant like call in right now and call into the TV station. And so I you know, run off the beach and I go find a payphone and call the TV station. And, and they said, there's been a plane crash and... I can't get a hold of the other anchors. <clears throat> I'm some, you know, we're calling everybody. Um, you know, you need to come in. So I dashed to my, uh, I had an apartment, a little, little apartment on the beach at the time, dashed to the apartment and, you know, clean up from the beach and dashed to the TV station, and which all of that probably took me 45 minutes or an hour or something like that. And by that time, they'd gotten the helicopter up and ran on the anchor desk, and this was the value jet crash. So all we had was me, the helicopter pilot reporter, and the camera out the side of the helicopter looking at the Everglades, looking for the value jet that had disappeared over the Everglades. And, and we went over and over this, went on for hours with this, and you know, finally I realized I said, wait a minute, I've been out in the Everglades. This isn't that deep. My recollection is that's like that water, what is that water? It's four or five or six feet deep. Where could the airplane have gone? And, and so it kind of slowly came to us that, oh my God, this airplane had to have compressed so that it was not visible in a few feet of water. And then other, you know, sciencey people would call in. Um, to kind of contribute to the coverage. So uh, that, was, that was one of the most poignant and amazing anchor moments to you know, just try and think of everything I knew about airplanes and everything I knew about the Everglades along with the terrific guy in the, in the helicopter pilot. We're going back and forth and looking and what do we see and what's that and, um, and we filled like three hours before the anchors, the regular main anchors came in and, and took over. It was uh, an amazing, horrible afternoon. Yeah, and what a challenge, too, to try to communicate and talk for, you know, if, if you've got information, long-form coverage can be really difficult mm -hmm. because you tend to spew it out and then you're done, you go back and you start over again. Mm -hmm. If you don't have information, it'd be a really challenging thing to cover. So just a couple more questions for you, Brian. 
Um, Andrew is obviously, you know, one of the bigger, maybe the biggest event in your professional life. Do any other storms stand out that you covered? Maybe Katrina or anything else like that? Well, Katrina, uh, the story of Katrina was kind of interesting and sad and amazing and horrible. Uh, so Katrina hit South Florida. So uh, from the time that Katrina began, uh, which it didn't begin, so it hit South Florida on the 25th of August, it only began a very few days before that, just east of the Bahamas. And that season had already been kind of busy, but it hadn't bothered us. But it, this formed near the Bahamas and then uh, surprised us by becoming a hurricane right before it came ashore on the Dade-Broward line. And it was, a, it was a pretty good storm. And some parts of uh, the metropolitan area had a big problem. They were building a bridge over the 836, uh, pedestrian bridge, 97th Avenue, that fell on the 836, and South Dade had a monstrous flood. I want to say it was a foot and a half or 20-some inches of rain from it in South Dade. And uh, you know, then it was forecast to go off into the Gulf and originally forecast to affect the Panhandle. Well, and we were all worried about, obviously, the Gulf Coast and, and uh, so forth. Well, so that whatever the dates were, so that the day that it was approaching the 29th, the day that it was approaching New Orleans. That was a Monday. And I was scheduled to go to New York that Sunday to, be, to do the fill-in and do the network weather from New York that Monday morning. But I told him over the weekend, I said, you know, this storm is going to hit. I'm better off here, and I'm going to have to do local as well. So I'll do the morning from of the weather office in Miami. And uh, so, and, you know, we had that arrangement. I had done that a few other times. So it was okay. Well, they had scheduled me for 45 second weather hits because they had kind of a fashion show going on that day as somehow part of the end of summer, uh, you know, coverage on the morning show. So I was there in the weather office, and David Bernard was in the uh, background helping out, and Craig Setzer was there doing graphics. And David was monitoring WWL Radio, which is the news station out of New Orleans by the Internet. And I had set up the desk there so that I could see the bulletins as they came in on a monitor just to my left, kind of like we have in the studio at Local 10, where we can look down if we put the, the website that we want right in front of us, uh, we have real-time access to information. Well, uh, in the 7 o'clock hour Eastern time, I said on the network that uh, New Orleans was so far so good that, uh, you know, we're holding our breath, but... But the city was doing okay, and uh, we're very concerned about Mississippi uh, because they were going to get the brunt of the storm surge. But uh, in the city of New Orleans, they were on the left side of the storm, and the reports so far were okay. And then the 8 o'clock hour came, and I was getting just getting ready to go on at about 10 minutes after 8, something like that, 10 or 12 after. And about 45 seconds before I went on the air, David yells from the back, WWL is reporting a levee break in the Lower Ninth Ward Industrial Canal. Flooding is underway. And just then, I look over at the monitor and I see flash flood warning, Lower Ninth Ward Industrial Canal, uh, uh, flood wall breach, so forth and so on. And, and 15 seconds later, I was on the air on CBS and I 
you know, talked about what uh, had happened and what was underway, and and this was very bad because flood walls protected a bunch of the city. It wasn't all levees. And anyway, I took my 45 seconds or a minute and threw back to them. And the management in New York is immediately in my ear. Are you sure? Are you sure? I said, yes, I'm sure. And, uh, and there was a lot of scurrying around then. But because they had that fashion show, we still only did 45 minutes. But I updated it every hour that morning uh, on the network. And then, of course, we talked about it on the, on the evening news. And it became a big story. And, and uh, a clip of the evening news from the day before, from that weekend that I had been on the evening news, actually starts Spike Lee's movie about, about Hurricane Katrina and, and New Orleans. So it's a, if you ever watch Spike Lee's movie about Katrina, that's me in the very beginning of it, talking about the uh, extreme threat to New Orleans on that day before. Oh, no kidding. Is that a documentary or is that like a movie, like a film? It was, uh, it's more or less a documentary, but it was in mean, Spike Lee's kind of intense way. It was this, you know, love story essentially with uh, New Orleans as it used to be. So another big storm was Sandy, right? In your career? Mm -hmm. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, by Hurricane Sandy, I was at the Weather Channel. So in 2010, I went to the Weather Channel to do hurricanes. So I left Miami Television in uh, 2008 because I had started a company, and Max Mayfield was part of this. And we had worried for years about the inability of emergency managers to communicate with the public uh, when hurricanes were coming. I mean, that, going back to Andrew about how you know I was essentially doing emergency management information, and I really thought emergency management offices should do that. And so I created a technology to allow emergency managers to communicate directly with the public and with television stations. It was sort of early streaming video before you know, there was streaming video as we know it today. And there's still a need, by the way, for uh, this service. And I got the Hurricane Center in the state of Florida and all the counties to, to join up and we created a business. So I quit TV to operate that business and, and Max helped me make all these contacts and so forth. So I, I was working on that, but three months, two months, two months after we started uh, the business, the, uh, the recession started. So over that next year, you know, the county said, I hate this, but we can't do it anymore. You know, we had you in the budget, but we've slashed our budget by 40% and we just can't do it. So it became clear that that, uh, that business wasn't going to work and the Weather Channel called in 2010 and said, would you come? Well, first of all, they called, NBC called and said, would you help us with our purchase of the Weather Channel and be a consultant? So I did that as part of my uh, business. And then, then uh, as part of that, I came to know them. They came to know me. And they said, would you come and be the hurricane specialist uh, in, starting in 2010 and work with uh, Dr. Rick Nabb? at the time as, as hurricane specialists. And I said, sure. So I just did hurricanes in 2010. And then they said, well, would you continue to do hurricanes, but would you help us reorganize the Weather Channel and the weather department at the Weather Channel? So uh, I managed, I was senior executive director of weather presentation and content on the Weather Channel for a couple of years. So a couple of things happened during that time. Uh, one was, uh, the first one was actually, that 2011 came along, and 2011 was the first year that Twitter started. 
being sort of the place you would go for breaking news. You know, if you heard that, oh, there was an explosion in, in New York or something, you know, where would you go to find out about it first? You'd look on Twitter and see who was tweeting about it. And that started in 2011. And the people that ran the uh, website part of the Weather Channel that didn't really directly work for me, but, but we worked together very closely, they came up with the idea of calling a snowstorm that came along in, uh, at Halloween, Snowtober. So they had a hashtag, hash Snowtober, that they put on all their tweets about this snowstorm. And I thought, wow, that's great. That's a great idea. And so I said, let's put Snowtober on the TV network and let's call this Snowtober. Well, it worked so great. Everybody called it Snowtober. Other TV stations started calling it Snowtober. They called it Snowtober in the newspaper. It worked great. And then I thought, okay, we need a hashtag for storms, but we're going to have Snowvember, and then what are we going to have, right? We have one more in that bag of tricks, and that was all that we were going to get out of that because there's no Snowsember is not going to work in Snow January or whatever. It, was no, it just wasn't going to work after that. So I said, what we need to come up with is a list of names in advance. Hello, being a hurricane guy. You know, I knew how names worked, and when storms were named, people paid more attention, and, and the whole thing, you know, kind of got, got uh, ginned up around the name. So I said, this, this is what we need. We need a list of names before. But the question was, could you name snowstorms? Because it doesn't work like hurricanes. You don't have, you know, let's go see if we have a circulation, and, and let's measure the winds and so forth. Snowstorms are more complicated, and there are more varieties of them and so forth. And so that winter, 2011 and to 2012, I, I kind of tasked my meteorologist department to see if there was a way that they felt comfortable coming up with some sort of threshold where we would name the storms. And we did. Internally, we did that. So we needed names for 2012. And so during the summer of 2012, before hurricane season, I worked on this. And one of the executive producers and his wife came up with the idea of Greek and Roman names. And we thought about flowers and we thought about all kinds of different things, but Greek and Roman names, I said, that's it, that's it. So I made that first list of names and I made it kind of provocative. I put, like started out with Athena and, and uh, Brutus and Caesar, all that. But then I put Draco because the Harry Potter series had been very popular. I thought that's going to get some attention. I put Gandalf in there and I put Khan and I put Q, just a Q for the letter Q, and I put uh, Nemo for the N. And it has sort of these, you know, interesting names in the list along with more traditional Greek and Roman names. And so we're waiting for hurricane season. Well, in the meantime, Hurricane Sandy happened. So I'm doing my hurricane stuff um, on the air with Hurricane Sandy. And, you know, Hurricane Sandy was extremely well-forecast storm. People talk about the European having it, European had it first, but the GFS was on board five days in advance. I mean, there was no reason for people not to be sort of warned about it, except for the fact it was so freaking unusual. But I wrote on all my posts, yes, this is really weird and unusual, but it makes sense, and this could be really bad, and storm surge could be really bad in the bite, it's called, the bite of where New York and New Jersey come together, and, 
and so forth. So, so Jim Cantore uh, was in New York, and I was in the studio, and uh, was the day, it was the Saturday before it came ashore on Monday, and uh, Mayor Bloomberg was on TV, and I'm half listening to it because I'm sitting there waiting for Brian Williams to come on to do the NBC News, to talk to me on the NBC News, and I'm listening at for... Uh, Mayor Bloomberg, and I thought I heard him say, no evacuation is going to be ordered. And I'm like, did I hear him say that? But then I had to go talk to Brian Williams about the storm and so forth. And then I go running back in the studio, and uh, Matt Sitkowski, who was one of the great executive producer people that I had hired in the meteorology department there, said, did you hear what he said? I said, did he say no evacuation? And and he said, yes, and well, why? Well, because it's not a tropical system. They're talking about post-tropical, and so the storm surge is not going to be as bad, and it was, you know, they were just confused. They just, I mean, as sophisticated and smart as those people were in emergency management in New York, they were confused by that forecast. And then I subsequently I learned a lot more about why they were confused and how, how Irene, the previous year, um, had confused them and how the National Weather Service briefing had confused them to some degree. But anyway, they were confused. So that night, um, I'm on the air and, and Cantori in New York says to me, says, were you surprised by what Mayor Bloomberg said? You know, like we talked all about the storm and we're just bantering back and forth. He was at the battery in, in lower Manhattan. And and I said, I was shocked <laughs> uh, because this is an extreme threat to the coastal areas and, and you know, depending on how it comes in with the tide, because in the northeast, unlike around Florida and in the Gulf, the tide makes a tremendous difference, like the tide swing is five or six feet. So if it comes in at low tide, it's an entirely different experience than if it comes in at high tide. Uh, and it came in at high tide in lower Manhattan, of course. But as it turned out, that actually turned out not to be a worst-case scenario. I mean, that took out the subways, that took out the power in Lower Manhattan. It was horrendous. It was horrible. I mean, it, and a lot of people died unnecessarily because they were first told it wasn't going to be that bad. Then, then on Sunday they were told it was going to be bad. And you know, it's very hard to turn people around once they're kind of committed to a plan. Um, but if it had come in at the opposite tide cycle, turns out that in Manhattan that when the tide is high in lower Manhattan, the tide is low in the northern part of Manhattan around the Harlem River and where the end of Long Island Sound comes all together there in the northern part of New York. And, and so it came in at low tide for LaGuardia Airport, which is up there, low tide for the uh, sewage treatment plants that are up in that part of Queens and low tide for the major food distribution center for all of New York City. If it had come in at high tide for the northern part, you wouldn't have had sewage, you wouldn't have had LaGuardia Airport, you wouldn't have had food distribution. So all of these things would have been taken out, which would have been much more difficult for New York City to function than for the subways to be taken out that ran into lower Manhattan and the power in just the southern part of Manhattan. The rest of the city was able to function. So it was a very... Very complicated thing, and I ended up uh, writing about this a lot and uh, had a lot of traffic back and forth, and the city council ended up having me come and testify, the New York City Council, about 
how the city was not prepared and the messaging was bad and how they should have done it and how they could have done it better and and uh, so forth. So it ended up, it wasn't an Andrew situation, but it was it was very, very, very intense and and, you know, trying to get the administration, the New York City administration to kind of acknowledge that they weren't thinking right, in spite of the fact that they were really super talented, brilliant people involved. But it, it were a lot of confusing factors in a place that didn't normally have hurricanes was the thing. So they, they weren't used to juggling all of the facts that we're used to doing in South Florida on a you know, much more frequent basis. So the, the, anyway, it was a mess. But it was it was a so, very dynamic uh, period after Andrew, or after uh, Sandy. I mean, how would that be played out differently? Because it was the transition, right? As it was uh, going through the transition from tropical to hybrid, mm -hmm. and thus, by definition, the name needs to be changed uh, from the National Hurricane Center. And I believe that the forecast was then passed off from the National Hurricane Center, correct, and into the WPC or the Weather Service. What would happen today if that were replayed? Would it be a hurricane? Would they, would they keep it? Well, they would have hurricane warnings, for sure. They technically wouldn't have it. It wouldn't be a hurricane. It would be a post-tropical uh, cyclone, post-tropical cyclone Sandy, as it was then. But there would be hurricane warnings. Because back then, they, they weren't allowed to put up hurricane warnings. So... And, and remember, I was not just doing hurricanes on TV. I was also running the weather at the Weather Channel. So when I first saw in the discussion that they were going to not going to put up hurricane warnings north of North Carolina uh, because they thought it was going to tr transition to a post-tropical cyclone, I said, we are not going to call this thing post-tropical cyclone under any circumstances. So re get ready to go into manual mode in the graphic system to change the name. We're going to call it Superstorm. <laughs> so, uh, so we never acknowledged the, the post-tropical cyclone thing on the Weather Channel. We went right to Superstorm. And uh, you know that got picked up in other media and, and so forth. So I, I don't know that you know, that I came up with Superstorm. Somebody else might have come up with it too. But anyway, it was a spur of the moment, like right now I need something besides post-tropical cyclone to, uh, to call this thing. And uh, it ended up being Superstorm Sandy, which of course had a nice alliteration to it besides. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> I think that's how it's remembered today. I mean, yeah. You hear Sandy, you hear Superstorm with it. It takes me back to your, your naming of the winter storms. Um, you know, you had some blowback mm -hmm. from that. There mm -hmm. was, there were a lot of people, a lot of, within the meteorology community mm -hmm. that thought you can't do this, 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 this doesn't work. Uh, but you did it anyway and you did make it work. So are you proud of that? Is it, would you change anything with it if you were to redo it today? And how, how did you define the, the winter storms to give them a name? Well, so uh, I really wouldn't change much, honestly. It was tremendously successful in every arena except for the meteorology arena. I mean, the airlines used it, the cities used it, the schools used those names. Uh, you know, that hashtags, you get like billions of, of hashtags of those storm names in a big storm, like Nemo that hit New York. The front of the New York Post was Nemo, you know, uh, so it worked on a social level, 
But and then actually, you know, the, the thing was, the, the problem was, to keep it from working on a meteorological community level, is that the Weather Channel did it, and people felt there was a competitive component to that. So when I first went and described it to the American Meteorological Society's broadcast conference, there was a room full of 200 or so broadcasters. I think one guy raised his hand when they asked, so would you use the Weather Channel's names? One guy raised his hand. But then they asked the question, if the National Weather Service did the names, would you use them? And most everybody raised their hands. Because people understood that naming the storm did indeed do what naming the storm does with tropical systems. It just creates attention to it. But they didn't like the idea of using a Weather Channel name, which I got. I totally understood that. Um, so... But the way that, that we ended up doing it was we created these criteria, and essentially the criteria were based around uh, winter storm warnings, that if a winter storm warning is gonna be issued for this area, and the area has to be sufficiently large to, to count, and enough people to count, not, so it had to be physical size or enough people, it had to be at least two million people, and I think 400,000 square kilometers, so a big area, and be under a winter storm warning for it to, to be able to be named. So we you know, just use the National Weather Service thresholds for winter storm warnings. The advantage of that was in the south, the threshold is very different for Atlanta than it is for Buffalo. So built into the winter storm warning process is these differences based on different parts of the country and different parts, different ways that the weather behaves and, and you know, that the city behaves. So, you know, they're still doing that today, to this day. I, I did the first seven years, I think, of names. I made them up. So, so, you know, the New York Times loved Q. You know, where did you come up with Q? Well, I said, well, there's the Q train in New York. When I was working with NBC, I would walk past the Q train every day. But, of course, when I did it, I actually liked Q from James Bond. I thought that put a little jazz in the name. Right, but the New York Times loved the Q train thing, and um, you know when Con came along, when Winterstorm Con came along, William Shatner, you know, tweeted about it because Con was a a high profile villain in Star Trek, and um, and things like that. So I got all this ancillary press. People from all over called, from the BBC called, from uh, you know newspapers and magazines and radio stations from all over called about the, the winter storm name. So, so it, it, it really worked very well, as I said, except for the competitive factor. And I've tried to this day to get the National Weather Service to, uh, to pick it up and, and make it part of their planning. And, and many people in the Weather Service get that, but, but you know, they wanna be very precise about it, and I get that, and it's a, it's a task in a, in a in an arena that they have a lot to do. You know, it's a, there's a tremendous amount of work that goes on in the National Weather Service just to do what they do and, and do decision support for emergency management and all those things. So taking on the process that has a slightly uh, political overtone, uh, I think uh, there's reluctance to do that. Yeah, they're trying, they're, they're taking steps with the hazard simplification process that we've mm -hmm. talked about on here before where they're dropping advisories and uh, uh, cleaning it up a little bit so there's not so many different uh, names for different weather events and different But the other thing, the other thing, process. the other thing, Luke, that happened was 
that uh, Great Britain and Ireland decided to name winter weather events, winter storms. Now, not just snowstorms. So, so our scheme was to only name snowstorms. Uh, when one of the flaws in the scheme, which I, you know, in my discussions with the National Weather Service about it, said this is a thing that you will have to figure out, is what do you do about West Coast winter storms? Because we, we really didn't fool with them until they got to the Rockies and became snowstorms. Right, we didn't because you never had enough population in a snowstorm on the west coast. But you had, can have significant damaging winter storms that come in off the Pacific. Well, wouldn't they deserve a name if you're in, you know, going in going that way? So, and my answer was yes, that 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 needed to be another category in the list of, of possible categories. I always said that you know if a storm was going to cause snow in Miami, that that should get named, regardless of any threshold, regardless of whether there was a winter storm warning because it was so unusual uh, you know that that should be a criteria a criterion as well as just the pure meteorological ones so you've we've talked a lot about hurricane communication on our podcast mm -hmm. before and you spent a big chunk of your life working on communication looking ahead what would you like to see change in communication wise with hurricanes I'd like to you see you had the yeah, so I'd like to see the, the National Hurricane Center uh, add to their scheme. So their scheme currently is to provide this tremendous amount of detailed, uh, high-quality, best-quality, world-class information. Right? That, that's what they do. If you go on their website, you have all these different graphics and bulletins and text products. And so what we have to do is we have to assemble that information into a single coherent message. I'd like to see them do that. I'd like to see them have a product that is sort of the bottom line, here's what we want to say about the storm. It's you know what I try and do when I write uh, for local10.com and, and I put on Facebook you know, my thoughts about, okay, what you would be thinking about with this storm today. So I'd like to see them either at the National Hurricane Center level or maybe more likely at the local weather office level so that in Miami, a storm that was coming towards South Florida might be seven days out. Well, what should we be thinking about it now? You know, just having a, a mention in, in a technical bulletin or something is not sufficient for Irma being days and days and days out. Uh, so some kind of, of product that is made to communicate with the public and everybody about, you know, what should as a community uh, area of responsibility should we be thinking about or doing or uh, working toward or, or, you know, where do we stand in terms of our risk with this uh, potential event, wrapping up all of that National Hurricane Center information and sort of culling it to the most important stuff. And, and making it in a way that gains credibility over time with the public so that the, there is a, uh, an authoritative voice uh, for not just the details of the forecast, but the, the uh, what should we do about it. You know, that would take a realignment of the National uh, Weather Service's role and, and um, you know, have, they'd have to have kind of a communications component to it and, and so forth. But anyway, I, I, I'd like to see that uh, because the way the private media is going, 
And in the United States, we don't have a BBC, and you know, like they have in Great Britain or in Japan, they have an NHK. There is a national government partially funded network that has responsibility in an emergency. We don't have that. We only have private voices. Well, but in the modern world, the private voices have gotten so fractured, you know, that that some people mostly go to local10.com, some people tune in the TV, other people go to Facebook, other people go to other TV stations or other websites or Twitter or whatever. So we, we have this very fractured communication system in the United States now. So I would like to see a, a, an authority in an emergency, whether it comes out of emergency management or it comes out of the local National Weather Service offices, um, kind of congeal a message that people feel comfortable. They can still get all the other information and the extra information, and, and there's always going to be more to say. But uh, I, I, you know, I think that we need that. We need that to happen. And it's what I hear from people appreciate what I do is I try and, I don't tell every detail, but I try and say what's important to think about, about the potential threat or it's not a threat or no reason to think about it now. We don't have to worry about it for a couple of days to think about thinking about it. Odds are it's not a problem, but it could be. We'll you know, wait till Saturday to worry about it and look at it then, still have plenty of time. You know help people sort through all of the information. To me, that's what's missing in our system today. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, Brian. And it sounds like it would be something that would need a map. You know, uh, I think of like the hazard threat index where you've got threat of A, then threat of B, then threat of C and D, you know, wind, tornado, rain, all that kind of stuff. It's like everything kind of needs to be lumped together because really people just want to know, Am I at risk? How high is my risk, right? Right. Uh, right now, what do we know? And then that's kind of it. And then from there, you peel the layers back and figure out what the risk is from. Right. Should I be worried? Should I be worried yeah. first? Should I be preparing? So, you know, first of all, you got to get worried. Then you have to mentally prepare to prepare. You know, you have to think about, okay, what does pre preparation mean for this situation? Then you actually have to physically prepare. You know, so there are all these steps and so we need a system that guides people through the, the reasonable steps based on the level of threat that we have. So what do you do for fun, Brian, on your <laughs> downtime when you're not tied up with hurricane stuff? This takes up a lot of your time, but, but what do you do when you're free? Well, I, I travel uh, a lot. I mean, obviously less so with COVID. Uh, as you know, I'm in New York a lot, and uh, I love New York City, uh, uh, you know, even before Sandy, but especially... Uh, post Sandy and and uh, and I um, you know I exercise uh, when I can so you know I'm not getting any younger and so I you know try and get out and even in South Florida in the summertime I still go run in the morning you know two or three days a week so uh, you know practice sweating <laughs> doing that ride yeah, bikes. You'd come into the office, it'd be the middle of July whenever we were all in the office, which, you know, we haven't done that in two years now, or a year, over a year. 